I am so glad you could join us. I'm your host, Mo Gaudat. This podcast is nothing more than a conversation between two good friends sharing inspiring life stories and perhaps some nuggets of wisdom along the way. This is your invitation to slow down with us. Welcome to Slow Mo. My guest today is a new friend, someone I met when I was interviewed on his podcast just a few weeks ago, The 40 Minutes Mentor. James Mitra is the founder and CEO of JBM, an award-winning executive search firm that works with some of the world's fastest growing startups and scale-ups. And you may wonder why I'm hosting a CEO and a founder and, you know, talking about business. Honestly, because when I met James, I felt a very genuine approach to someone who wanted to do things right, to make things better, and became extremely successful as a result. It's not his business skills and business plan and profit analysis and all of the PL management that we learn in business school that I think makes James profitable. I think what makes him successful is an intention, a conviction that business is not just about the money. And I really loved that part and wanted to share it with you. As I said, James is also the host of a very popular podcast, The 14 Minutes Mentor, and sits on the board of the recently created For Good Accelerator that is called Unrest. I hope you enjoy this conversation, a refreshing, different view at part of our life that we call work with James Mitra. So let's talk about anything. I, I actually wanted to ask, honestly, the first thing that came to my mind when, when I was like, now we're going to be recording is the, is the idea of job markets and the last year. I mean, everyone knows that so many people lost their jobs. You're at the heart of this. You're in executive recruitment specifically. So what JBM does is it recruits top level executives. Yeah, we do both actually. So I lead our exec search practice, but we also do experienced higher mid-level role, but all into scale-ups. Um, uh-huh. So so we've seen it from kind of both perspectives, really. The the people kind of going up the ladder and then those at the top. Okay. It's, been, it's certainly been interesting, yeah. Yeah, so what happened last year? You know, we, we hear that a lot of people, a lot of our friends lose their jobs, but what's your view? Yeah, I mean, yeah, I mean, for me, the initial thing that happened was panic. A lot of companies, especially those in travel industry and, and various others, just kind of, there were lots of cuts made. And then all of a sudden, there were tons of people on the market. And it was a pretty depressing and dark stage, I think, for a lot of people. I think the government did a good job with the furlough scheme. So that helped keep a lot of people going. But there was just a lot of uncertainty. And I think there were there were people maybe at the latter stages of their career where it kind of may have expedited retirement, perhaps. I think there are people who, I think there were others that used it as an opportunity to to kind of go a different direction, which is great. And we, we launched a new solution around sort of the gig economy. So it's effectively an interim solution for scale-ups. And we tapped into that pool of people that didn't have work as, a, as, you know, as an opportunity to kind of help them find something quickly. So there was there was kind of a lot of creativity, but also just I think a lot of people's mental health. 
uh, was really badly impacted. And, and so I think it was very hard to get motivated for a lot of people. And I've, there have been a lot of, a lot of candidates we've spoken to who have found the market incredibly tough. Um, what we then saw though was because a lot of our companies are tech scale ups. Once they've got over the initial panic stations of has everyone got enough laptops and, you know, how are we going to do this? Actually, because they're tech businesses or, or e-commerce or whatever, actually they were going to be fine because all of a sudden there was a spike in users and, and sales and people wanting to use their product more than ever. And, and so actually they started hiring again. So we had like a period of six months, which were pretty lean and quite quiet and forced us to think about other ways of adding value, doing more podcasts, etc. And then all of a sudden, since the summer, we've been incredibly busy. Um, but it's, they're all very, like the searches we're doing are even tougher in a way because the clients are able to be that much pickier than ever because they have a huge pool to pick from. There are, you know, I guess COVID has taken out some competition. There are some good people on the market. So you've got to work that much harder because clients can go, I want this, I want the unicorn, I want it all. And so we've had to work quite hard for our, our fees, but uh, that's what we do and, uh, you know, we enjoy it. So do you believe it's coming back now? So, you know, should people have hope that more and more hiring will happen? hundred percent. Yeah. I mean, we're busier than ever, if I'm honest. I'm always a bit nervous about saying that because I know how lucky we are and I know how bad some other recruitment firms have suffered. But I think we're lucky in the space we operate. You know, we're lucky in the fact we do exec search and contingent recruitment. So when it was very quiet for me at the exec end, the, the more junior roles kept us going. And I think and maybe this is something we talk about. I also think the way we've built the business, I set the business up to be the antithesis of that very transactional salesy recruitment firm. We've grown completely through word of mouth. It's very community oriented. So although that meant growth was slower in the early years, when you get to difficult moments, then the clients there kind of lean on you yeah. even more so. And, and, and so we found actually, I guess you, sometimes these difficult situations bring out the worst in our competition in terms of being more aggressive, you know, dropping their fees, but just doing everything they can to get. Whereas we've just been like, look, we're here. We're always here. We always have been. And we're going to yeah, hold your hand through this process. And that's that's really worked. And, and I, if anything, like our relationships have really strengthened over this time, mainly because there was a lot of months where, you know, we were literally just on hand, almost like a I don't know, like a counseling session, just being like, it'll be fine. <laughs> yeah. You know, we're here. So this is your first real economic downturn. I mean, when, when did JBM start? So eight and a half years ago. So yeah, the first proper one, when I started my recruitment career about 10, 10, 11 years ago, and it was, I was the first graduate that Michael Page hired out of the last recession. So it was an interesting time because they'd really cut all the, what they would call deadwood from the business, probably some very good people, but they'd made tons of cuts. And then they were tentatively starting to grow again because I was focusing on management consulting hiring. A lot of the banks were obviously a mess. And so actually I joined at a very good time because all the consultancies were hiring to go in and fix Lloyd's and HBOS and RBS and all that sort of stuff. So I got you know an expedited trajectory at Micropage. And you didn't stay long. You started your own thing, what, two and a half years later? Two and a half years later, yeah. I um, Three and a bit years later, actually, because I did a year in a startup. So I, uh -huh. yeah, <laughs> I, I really, I was miserable, if I'm honest. I, I think um, I did quite well at Michael Page, but I found the corp. I mean, there were lots of lovely people, but I found the transactional nature of recruitment in a big corporate really 
soul destroying, if I'm honest. And it wasn't really until my now wife, but at the time, very good friend. I got Lucinda, a, I helped get her a job at Michael Page. And so she saw me day to day for about six months. And we went to school together. So we've been known each other since we were 11. And she just, she was just like, this, this isn't you. Like she, the, I guess the kind of spark had gone. Yeah, I'm an <laughs> extrovert people person, you know, but I think I was working these crazy hours and, and it was just really grinding me down. And I didn't really know why. I think probably I was depressed, but I never, it was only looking back on it. I've noticed that. So, um, so yeah, so I kind of, I escaped. I, I said, I'd never work in recruitment again. I went to go work for one of my clients and uh, they'd set up a startup advisory firm. And I did a year doing BD for them. And uh, I was terrible at it, if I'm honest. <laughs> <laughs> but it was, um, it was a real learning experience, you know, totally opposite end of the spectrum. They gave me a credit card. They gave me an iPad at the time, which was about this, the size of a laptop back then, 10 years ago. And they just said, go win us some business. And, and, it, and I was out of my depth, but I loved the entrepreneurialism. I loved being in a startup. I loved the freedom I had. And that's basically what ended up leading sort of, yeah, why I set JBM up a, a year later and a few other things. But uh, yeah, a strong desire to change some hearts and minds. <laughs> I want to know the other things because not everyone gets, I mean, so like you rightly said, the pressure or the weight of the corporate world crushes all of us, but then not everyone moves. Not everyone says, you know, I'm not going to do this. I'm just going to find something else. Not every, everyone goes to a startup and definitely not everyone starts their own thing. So why? No, you're totally right. I think there's a few reasons why I set JBM up. I think the first was in the, I was working for this startup advisory firm and it was quite quiet in the summer. And I had a lot of my old clients coming to me saying, we kind of miss working with you. I know you're not working in recruitment anymore, but is there any way you could help? And I just kind of pitched it to the owner of this business. Look, I can make you a bit more revenue. I can do what I used to do. Would that be useful? So I kind of set up a recruitment business for them and it went really well. And then I realized, why am I doing this for a 10 person business when all the, <laughs> all the candidates are mine, all the clients are mine, I'm doing all the work and then I'm giving away most of the revenue. And I'm not about money. I've never cared about money. But actually what I loved was this, I loved that building of that mini business within a business. And I guess... I guess what it taught me was I didn't hate recruitment. I, when I left my corporate job, I thought I did. But then actually when I realized I was doing it under my own steam and I realized that actually the industry has a terrible reputation at times, but actually if you change your outlook to it, and mine has always been the same. I love talking to people. I love getting them jobs. And I, it's not just because of the commission. It's you can change someone's life by getting them a job. And I became great friends with all the people I placed. So I thought, well, if I can turn that kind of, if I can change hearts and minds about recruitment, if I can build a business known for being truly relationship focused, really honest, really consultative. And frankly, I, having had a year in a startup, I really wanted to work with entrepreneurial people and businesses because I think I realized that is where I'm at my best. So it was kind of those things. And then the, the personal element was, just told you a minute ago, um, I became well, my girlfriend or my friend had become my girlfriend because we'd known each other since we were 11. It was clear to me that that was it. Like I wanted to get married and we were still relatively young at the time, but I knew that I'd need to get a ring. I'd need to, you know, 
pay for a wedding. You know, we had some support from our family, but it was all that sort of stuff. I wanted to have like a once in a lifetime honeymoon, all those things. And I, as I said, I'm not money motivated, but I thought, well, the, probably the quickest way for me doing those three things is to just be the master of my own destiny. And if it doesn't work, then that's on me. But if it does, then I can do those things. And it all kind of, I set myself these little financial goals and yeah, I guess gradually got there. And then all of a sudden, two years down the line, I built a business that was, you know, that had grown completely through word of mouth. I didn't have a website. I didn't have anything. It was just me delivering for clients and the feedback was great. And, and I guess was building a bit more of a reputation. And I, I turned around and I realized, you know, I'd got married. We'd got a deposit on a house. Um, I'd built something I was really proud of. And I suddenly was like, oh, I, actually, I have a business. Like I can actually, maybe I should think seriously about what this is going to be. And that kind of was the the next stage in the journey. And and I guess is, is kind of where I, I'm, why I'm here now, kind of eight years later. You have no idea how much I can relate to this. So I, I married my college sweetheart in a very interesting way. I'm really not interested in money. I mean, I never really understood it. I, you know, there was a bit of my life where I had that madness about, uh, you know, all of the things that we get crazy about. And then now I really don't get it anymore. But anyway, I married my college sweetheart and I wanted to be a carpenter at the time. So I went out of university, graduated with honors, very high. I think until today, it's the highest ever scored graduation project in the history of my university. And yeah, and yet I said, I want to be a carpenter. And actually, I'm a very good carpenter. Even today, I, you know, rented a small space, had a carpentry workshop, built things just for the love of them. And then, you know, looked at her and she was, you know, she still is the most supportive person ever. Even after we separated, she's still the most supportive person ever. And she said, but I don't think we can build a family from the workshop and I was like, yeah, but I like it so much. <laughs> and she was like, you know, maybe we can do something else on the side. And so, you know, <laughs> two days later, I yeah. found a job at IBM, which was <laughs> in my mind, <laughs> in my crazy mind, IBM was the thing on the side. You know, it's like, I'll go yeah. do this in the morning and then I'll go to the carpentry workshop in the evenings. But I can relate to that. Tell me about, before we go into entrepreneurship and, and mainly also the podcast, I really am interested in your podcast. But what is it like to marry someone? someone you know since 11 I mean what is that it's wonderful it's wonderful it really is I think because we know each other so well and I can tell you a bit about about the crazy school we went to which is is pretty unique but we uh, you know we weren't best friends at the beginning of school but kind of gradually as, as do tell about yeah. the crazy school that's your <laughs> well, I, I will do yeah <laughs> we, we um kind of got to know each other. We knew each other from 11. And then I'd say we became better friends by the time we were 14. We actually dated for about a week. And the oh. school talent show got, got in the way. Yeah, she was dancing. I was singing, you know, uh, you know, crazy social lives got in the way of, uh, of a budding romance. <laughs> the crazy social lives of a 14-year-old. Yeah. Uh, yeah, honestly, she was too busy rehearsing for her dance thing. And I was too busy rehearsing for my singing thing. We just couldn't make it work. <laughs> but we stayed great. We were great friends all through school. And and actually, we we became even closer after school. We went through things together, you know, like a lot of people do when you're young, loss and illnesses in families and various things on both sides of the family. And we kind of, I guess, got closer through dealing with some of those challenges. And I guess it was just, yeah, I think we became best friends. Like That's, that's the best way to put it. And then it was only when I kind of 
coaxed her up to London. I'd been in London for a couple of years and then got her a job. And, and actually, she hated the job in recruitment. <laughs> she was actually brilliant at it, but she, she really didn't enjoy it. But it was actually all of a sudden the sparks were there and they kind of maybe had been in the past. They definitely had been in the past, but it had all been platonic. Yeah. And then effectively we, we decided to, to start dating, but it was one of those really difficult things. Cause you're like, do you risk a friendship? We all have the same friends. Our families have known each other since we were 11. My sister was in the same boarding house as her and her sister at school. It was honestly, it was, there was a lot riding on it. And uh, I know. But we went all in and, um, you know, married at 27, you know, Sienna came along a year later. Um, and yeah, here we wow. are. Kind of, I'd say happier than ever. I mean, like any couple in lockdown, it's been challenging, but we've actually, I think as a, as a family unit, we're closer than ever. That's so beautiful. Tell me about that moment. First of all, were you the one that came up with that idea of like, F friendship, I want to be more or was she the one? <laughs> oh, it kind of happened. Okay. I think we were both thinking about it. And then she actually came, I guess it was me. I asked her to come to a ball. I was playing rugby at the time, a lot of rugby, and we were doing a fundraiser. And we had just such a good night. Dan I mean, we both love dancing, both love music. Dance the night away. And it was just, yeah, it kind of was like, this is actually kind of more than friendship, isn't it? And then there's that whole like, oh, do we, do we, don't <laughs> we? And I think probably some of our friends were like taken aback when it happened because I guess they, they hadn't seen it coming, but everyone was so supportive and it's been lovely, you know, our wedding particularly because, you know, you had all of our mutual friends and old teachers of ours from school came to our wedding that both of us knew it was lovely. And, and it's, it's been very special. And it's based on friendship, Mo. Yeah. You know what? Most of the time when I get people asking me about dating advice, which is not my area of expertise at all, I always, I always say, date your best friend. Seriously. I, I mean, and I say it in a different context. I say, don't really give yourself to someone until you know for certain they can be your best friend. Because I think what lasts, what really strengthens relationships beyond that little honeymoon period at the beginning where it's all sparks and everything's amazing is, is the fact that you can actually relate to that person in a way that is very similar to friendship. There is a spiritual connection, there is an intellectual connection, there is a, some kind of a match of hobbies and interests and so on. And then, yes, add to that the emotional spark and the rest of it, and it will be amazing. But without that foundation, I think it doesn't work. Yeah, you're completely right. And it's been, uh, yeah, I think friendship has always been at the heart of it, really. And it will be forever. I mean, that's, that is what brought us together effectively. And uh, I think keeps relationships really strong. I totally agree with that. I mean, even now, I mean, so Nibel, I told you, I, Nibel again was my best friend, my ex-wife. And we remained married for 28 years, raised two wonderful children. And then eventually, even as we separated, you know, when we felt that, okay, it was time to try something different, we're still best friends. You know, she bought me coffee a couple of days before I left Dubai. And we still had the same amazing intellectual, deep, connected, spiritual conversations we've always had, which I think is fabulous. Some things never break, you know, we're still the parents of Aya and Ali were still the people who spent 28 years together. So that's wonderful to hear because you do, you do hear, don't you? There are many examples where it isn't always positive after separation, but actually I've seen in, in my own life, some really strong bonds remain. And I yeah, think yeah, that's yeah. wonderful when you've spent so much time together. I was going to tell you a bit about my school because I think you'll find it yes. interesting. <laughs> 
I know we were going to talk maybe a bit about community, which is something important to me. And I think the earliest, the earliest example of community was my school. So it's called Christ Hospital. I don't know if you've ever heard of it. It was uh, founded in 1552. So it's a really old institution. It's really unique. There's a marching band and the kids march into school every day. The uniform <laughs> is from the 1500s, okay. you know, with breeches and yellow socks. Honestly, the dining hall has the, I think I'm right in saying Europe's largest painting, which was almost used as Harry Potter's kind of great hall, but didn't quite make the final list. So it has all these bizarre little quirks. And it, on the outside, it sounds like another very posh private school. But the honest truth is it's, it's completely different because I think 15 to 20% of the kids pay nothing to go there and everyone else is means tested. So it's tailored towards your parents' income. So it's really not the rich that go. It's priorities is kind of giving access to this world-class education, these incredible facilities out in West Sussex, but to those that really need it. And so a large of the sort of proportion of the kids that go are from low-income families, inner-city families. Many of them are single parents. So the vast majority of my mates from school, you know, only had one parent. And then so many different cultures. I mean, my rugby team had two Koreans, two Ghanaians, two Nigerians, uh, half Indian. Wow. I mean, honestly, all colours of the rainbow and this chucked together in this beautiful melting pot. And I think the reason I mentioned like community, and I guess it's very linked to to Lucinda. What you do, that, yeah. Yeah, a lot of those people would never have had access to that, you know, education. And so what's different about it is they truly appreciate it. They really, really make the most of it. And effectively, the way the school runs is if you go on to do great things and make money, there's this kind of like, when you leave the school, they give you a Bible and they charge you to remember what you've been given. And if you can give back, then basically that you do. So effectively, the school is is really funded by old blues, as they're called, giving back and then sponsoring another child through the school. And it's a great example of kind of it's social mobility. It's a great idea. In yeah. action. Yeah, it, it's really powerful. And it creates this unique bond that I've never seen from anyone else. Just the types of people this boarding school starts at 11 so you're very young when you're thrown together often it's the first time you've been away from your parents and you become a family and that community of old blues has been so fundamental to my life you know my greatest friends are there my wife comes from there i've hired multiple old blues into jbm you know i go back to the school regularly to talk about you know entrepreneurship careers etc and it's it's why I'm so passionate about social mobility. And that's why one of the reasons we set up the podcast was around, you know, giving access to mentorship to everybody and talking about important topics. And because sometimes it's, it can be quite elitist that access to those sorts of inspirational people. There's such an inspirational view of a childhood, to be honest. I mean, in reality, and I say that with a ton of respect, so I'm I'm in touch with the British community for many, many reasons, but of course I'm quite international in the way I've lived my life. And definitely there is that elitist approach to boarding schools in the UK, you know, which is not even denied. I think it's, it's publicly known that if you're from this school, then, you know, you're part of that inner circle, if you want, of something. And it, it's really interesting for me that a school would deliberately want to say, hold on, this is not about color, it's not about race, it's not about your income, it's not about any of the things that make you different than others, it's about the things that make you similar to others, you know, and I think that's exactly very, very beautiful. I mean, we're living in a time where sadly, 
George Floyd and you know what's happening in Palestine and so many things around the world are just showing us more and more that people can be cast as a as a different category and and hurt as a result and I think it's time for us to have something that is a little more inclusive as a model but but I wonder why this is not common the way you describe it is a lot more like parenthood if you want you know no parent really signs a contract with their child and says come back and take care of me but most of all you know the ones that really take care of their parents have been raised by parents that were fair and open and giving and so the children grow to give back i think the school sounds like that yeah very much so i think everyone that goes through it and i should be to be transparent obviously it's a boarding school not everyone loves it i mean it's not a given that every single person that goes there wants to give back because everyone has different experiences and some frankly aren't well suited to the boarding lifestyle but i think it is almost like a moral obligation if you go to school and you do benefit from it and you enjoy it and you know, when I look around my friendship group, just to have gone on to do some incredible things, all of our first thought, you know, we have a collective, our year, we're in the process of creating a collective to sponsor children through the school forever, effectively, it will just be a fund we grow. And when there's enough money in it, we'll put them, someone through school. And that's just inherent with us. Like that is the obvious thing to do, because all of us were so lucky. I'm a separate case to a lot of them, because that, if I'm honest, my parents taught at the school, so I didn't have a choice. Like, I was going to go there anyway. So oh. I wouldn't want to sit here and say that I've had some really hot. I had a, a lovely upbringing. I was very comfortable and my parents are teachers and I was very lucky. But I think for me, actually, just I probably wouldn't have had the exposure to all of these different types of people and cultures. And, and it's made me the person I am, if I'm honest. I guess with that kind of, or maybe you could call it a global outlook, I think it's just so important to have diverse and inclusive schools and also businesses and that's why a big part of what we do at JBM is to encourage that in hiring because I've seen it in action the best teams are the most diverse ones and I think the oh, I best agree. schools are also the most diverse ones too. I agree I agree so let's talk about that community so you're really really committed to this idea of community building and obviously now I understand it comes from that school that upbringing that really made you who you are but how do you do that in your life now? Oh, in my life now, I guess at work at, at JBM, you know, we're recruitment and exec search business. Um, and one of the things that we've always tried to do is be different to the, the typical recruiter. And one of the things we realized early on is that we would grow, if we could go through word of mouth, through going above and beyond, really, not just placing people into jobs, but actually just being a, almost like a career coach, guide, being a mentor, you know, sometimes connecting candidates to other recruiters if we think they're better placed to help. As I've said to you before, I'm not all about the, the money. I'm, I'm one of the few recruiters. It sounds silly, really, but I'm not driven by that at all. I tend to take a long-term approach to everything. So if I can add value to you in your search, if I can help you make your CV better, if I can coach you through interview processes, if I can create opportunities for you, you'll remember that and you'll tell your friends. And then you'll, when you're hiring, when you're a CEO or a founder of a company, hopefully the first person you'll think of is me. And so it's not purely selfless. I've, I've seen the commercially it works really well, but a big part of it is kind of building that community. So early on in JBM, I decided that was the way I was going to grow. It was going to be all through organic growth through word of mouth. And if I'm honest, it was very slow. In the first couple of years, it went well, but it took time. And I would not always charge really big fees. And I would sometimes screw myself over by 
handing candidates to other recruiters. And, and sometimes I'd tell people not to take jobs because if I didn't think they were going to stick there for the long term or it wasn't going to be beneficial to their career, then that's not going to make any of us look good. But what there was a bit of a network effect. So we ended up building effectively a pool of ambassadors who are effectively sort of champions for JBM. And, and, and that was kind of kind of happened early on. And then over the years, we decided to kind of capture that secret source. You know, I had a board meeting. We were talking about what makes JBM special. And it was just all these champions that referred all our business, referred all the candidates, shouted about us on social media, even though we did no marketing ourselves until recently. And then what we decided to do was build this pool of ambassadors. And what that effectively meant was quarterly meetups, um, you know, LinkedIn group for networking discussion. And we'd bring inspiring speakers. We did some of the very first 40 minute mentor sessions live for that community exclusively. And I think that the truth is it wasn't meant to, the whole point of it was not work. It was, you know, we wanted to build a community where like-minded people that had done a lot for us, we could, we could say thank you. So there'll be pizzas, there'll be beers, you know, there'll be great, all different types of people, some really senior executives, some basically almost graduates, but everyone was important in their own way. And it was a brilliant chance for them all to get together, to vent, to laugh, to share ideas. And it created many friendships. And then on the flip side, what happened was because we weren't there selling really hard about JBM, just organically, over the course of that, those sorts of evenings, people would say, oh, do you know what? This person's hiring, or you should talk to my friend, let me connect to you. And it just snowballed. And, and we did that, you know. And I think, I'm sure there are other companies that do it, but, but I think we, we really have prioritized that. And it's made a massive difference. They, we talk about JBM being a family internally, but it goes beyond that. Like, I hope if you speak to candidates and clients about JBM, they'll all say similar things in terms of the personal approach and that kind of caring mentality. And it's just, it's just human connections. Mo. I know you, you're very similar, I think, to me in, in yeah, this, the importance of just having that, those just human connections. So one of the things I always thought about business is the idea that you are not supposed to be initiated and driven by a business plan. You're supposed to be initiated and driven by a value plan. And I refer to that in terms of what difference are you making to the world? Everyone sells everything now. If you're a, a shoemaker, then there must be like a million of them and some of them are giants. And accordingly, because there is no difference, if you ask me, people start to spend billions in advertising and they just bombard you with things that are not even related to the product. And you wonder what, what a girl in bikini has to do anything with Coke and why is it that this is the message that, because there is really nothing, no, no value that is brought by the product at all. And I think the idea of, hey, we're building a community. We're here to help your career. And if we help your career, eventually we're going to end up with you helping our business somehow. You know, value doesn't get destroyed, just like the conservation of energy, basically. You know, if you create value in the world, it's going to come back to you. I think that makes a lot of sense as a principle of business. I totally agree. I really do. And I think there is something to be said for this taking a long-term approach. It's not always, sometimes you get quick wins and there's nothing wrong with that. But I think there's something that comes from just like steadily building totally. meaningful relationships, getting to know someone, building that trust and rapport. And and I think the same goes for in a sales environment. I, I mentor quite a lot of younger recruitment owners. And one of the things I always say is don't be quick to sell. You should be clear on your USPs, but but actually listen 
listen and actually find out, you know, how you can best help your clients and then kind of make sure that you're kind of reacting to that as opposed to just going straight in and trying to sell really hard. And I think that's where what I've learned from quite early on from JBM is actually if I just take time and not rush it and just build those relationships over time, they will come good. And you've got to just stay true to those principles. And it's hard at times, you know, they're required some months. And that's, I think if you just stick to your guns on it, you'll pay off in the long run. Welcome to slow-mo. This is the whole well, principle exactly. here. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> but truly, there are so many things you can do quicker when you do them slowly. And I, I think a lot of people don't realize that. When I speak about slowing down, it's not just to chill and be on a beach somewhere. It's most things are done better when they're done properly. I always refer to my very dear friend who was very, very fast. He sat across from me in, in my IBM cubicle and very first job. And you could hear him typing away, like he must type an encyclopedia a day. I mean, it's impossible <laughs> to type this fast. And then you, you know, when I asked him, you realized that he was pressing the backspace so frequently that it felt that he was typing a lot, but he was, he would type and make mistakes and then backspace, backspace, and then type again. And it sounds like very fast, but it isn't, you know, slowing down makes a difference. I really enjoyed our conversation on the 40 minutes mentor. And it felt to me that it wasn't a commercial approach. It felt to me that this was something that you actually did to help people. You really wanted people to be mentored. So first of all, why specifically the topic of mentorship? And why do you think it is as special as a podcast? So it's something we've talked about ever since I set the business up eight and a half years ago. A lot of candidates come to me asking me about how do I get a mentor? And, and I guess we've filled a bit of that role in some respects in the way that we are with candidates, but often you need a specific type of mentor, possibly for a specific problem or a gap in your skill set. I mean, there's lots of different ways mentors can help. And so I kind of had a lot of these conversations on repeat. So in, in one ways, it was just, I thought, well, actually, I'm very, very blessed to talk to brilliant people like yourself and lots of inspirational founders. And I thought, well, actually, I get to do this pretty much every day. And I learned tons from those conversations. Why don't we kind of give back a little and open up those conversations to others to hear? And, and I guess it always comes back for me to that social mobility angle of help raise some aspirations and give those that wouldn't get access to those conversations the access to them and potentially inspire the next generation of entrepreneurs to come through. And, and I think for me, it was always about having really candid conversations, not just about the good stuff, actually probing the challenges and the, the difficult times and how you've overcome them. When I set it up, it really wasn't a commercial thing. It was like, it was, I guess it came from that place. And then also there was, I guess the business side of it was more that we saw so much generic content in recruitment, so much of it. And I thought, do you know what, at the time, two years ago, there weren't many recruitment firms doing podcasts. And I thought this is actually a really good way for me to get across our authentic voice and also talk about topics that we really care about. So we've done roundtable specials on social mobility and how we can advance it. We've done them on mental health. We've done them on diversity and inclusion. And we've purposefully picked guests that are real experts in what they do, who are incredibly inspiring and have done amazing things. And, and that's not just to show off, oh, look, we have access to them. It's because we know they'll make an impact. If you listen to the 40 Minute Mentor, I genuinely believe you'll come away with great mentorship that actually is tangible and actionable and you can help you in your career. And to be honest with you, we're, yeah, we're 50 episodes in, five series. It's very much kind of 
passion project, I guess. It's not really a revenue generator, but it's, um, you know, it has resulted in clients. You know, it definitely has helped our reputation and, you know, it has made money, I guess, indirectly, but it's really about giving back. And actually, selfishly, I get to meet just people like yourself and learn loads. And as somebody that created a business at 25, I haven't had loads of experience. So actually, it's a slightly selfish way of actually talking to great entrepreneurs and, and educating myself. I have to say that the kind of feedback and the frequency of feedback I received was, I mean, I speak on podcasts and, you know, do interviews all the time, but I think people were very appreciative. So the listeners, the audience were very, very appreciative of the concept of I'm here for 40 minutes to spend time with someone who has an experience and has done well. And it felt that it actually is quite effective. Do you recall maybe two or three of your favorite advice that you heard on the 40 minutes mentor? Oh, that's really tricky. There's so many, there's so many. I mean, oh yeah, we finished the season five just the other week and we had Sir Clive Woodward who took England through to World Cup glory at rugby. I don't know if you're a rugby fan, mate, but he's a, he's a world-class coach. He led the British Olympics team, sport team, for, for three Olympics, I think he's a real like pioneer when it comes to coaching sports teams, but also he's a tech entrepreneur. He founded a ed tech business. So he's a really successful guy. And I'll be honest, I was a little bit sort of awestruck because I, I admired him a lot from a rugby perspective, but actually he just shared some incredible, incredible advice. One of the things that really stuck out to me was the importance of building psychological safety in organizations and teams to allow for healthy debate and sharing ideas and allowing every voice to have a say. And I thought that was really interesting because he built a, the world's best rugby team that did something no one else had ever done. No other English person had won a World Cup. And it was full of big characters and difficult characters by all accounts. But actually by creating the sort of environment he did, it allowed everybody to have a say. But at the end of those very heated discussions, because they had the psychological safety, to actually be able to voice those opinions, they were all still very unified and they had this common goal. We are going to become the first English team to win the World Cup and here's how we're going to do it. And they were really united. So that I found that really interesting and it's a lot of feedback from that episode is how from people that whose companies don't have the psychological safety. And that often comes from leadership. And I think that's where, and that's something I've learned particularly for myself is the importance of being a vulnerable leader. You know, I very British stiff upper lip in the earlier parts of my career. And it's only, it's only probably in the last couple of years, probably since I had my daughter, but particularly since the pandemic where I've dropped my guards a bit and actually said, it's okay to be vulnerable. It's okay to say you're having a bad day and be really open with your team because it allows them to say the same thing. And there isn't that fear inside you that if I say something, I'm going to be judged. So that particularly stood out for me. And he'd said some other brilliant stuff about, dealing with pressure and how he handled the, I guess, the uncontrollables in um, in rugby and on the way to the winning a World Cup. So that really stood out. Love that. One more. Um, well, I, part of me thinks I should, there's no, so many no, from no, your no. episode, but no, we no, won't focus on me, you. Not me. <laughs> yeah. Although I love the idea of thinking of happiness as like fitness, that, that really stood out. But I think the other one, do you know what? There's a guy called Alex Stephanie who runs an incredible business called Beam. It's crowdfunding for homeless. It is 
one of my what? favorite businesses. I love yeah, it's that. A tech, what is that? Tech for good platform. It's a tech for good platform. It is, and I'll happily connect you to him. He is wonderful. He came on the 40 minute mentor and was just so inspiring. Um, and he's helped many, many homeless people get into new jobs and JBM, you know, we pay money each month to go towards different campaigns. And he talked about, he was an ex lawyer and then he went into entrepreneurship and he, very simply, he talked about, does your work give you energy or does it tire you out? And he said that as a lawyer, he was tired all the time. And one, it's because he's working crazy hours, but mainly because he really hated the work. And I guess in my job, I talk to a lot of people every day who don't enjoy what they do. And I guess this comes back to happiness at the end of the day, but there's now so many opportunities to do different things. And, and I think you don't need to be stuck in a rut, hating what you do, not wanting to get out of bed in the morning. If you can find that thing that makes your, gets you excited, um, you know, and makes you want to jump out of bed in the morning, you know, then you're onto something. And I really think there's, that is out there for everyone. Sometimes you've got to work a little bit harder to find it. Sometimes you've got to take a longer path to get there. But I think, you know, there are things you can do from straight away to, to kind of start that process. I love that. I have to say, I, I always enjoy every conversation you and I have. I have enjoyed the Lucinda part of our conversation today <laughs> the most. I think she's... Uh, I don't think she expected to be in this podcast, but um, she is She yeah. is wonderful. So uh, yeah, I'm very so lucky. So my wish is, as we said, next time I'm in London, I'd love to buy you a coffee. So I'd love to buy you and Lucinda a coffee. And I think... Oh, uh, that would be wonderful. And I know you're a coffee connoisseur, so uh, I, I look forward to that. I'll find the right place for you. And I, uh, <laughs> it's always a pleasure, James. Thank you so much for your time. I really thank enjoyed you, this mate. conversation. It's been a real pleasure. Thank you. And thank you for everything you do. It's, uh, I'm a big, big fan. And thank you all for listening. Honestly, the reason I wanted to host uh, James today is when we spoke on his podcast, he came across as someone that actually does business, goes through life the way I think life should be gone through. I mean, the, the reality is you can almost feel a sense of if it's good, I'm going to do it and then things will work themselves out. You know, I'm going to do it right. I'm going to make a difference. I'm going to add value. And if I do, the money will follow. And I think that kind of attitude and that kind of approach is probably needed in our world today, not to do business out of the business plan, but as I call it, out of the value plan. What difference am I making to the world? I hope you enjoyed this as much as I did. And uh, if you did, I hope that you will help us spread it. I hope that you will reach out to me on social media and send me some of your recommendations and comments. And um, yeah, I hope that you remember that regardless of how busy you are today, uh, you will remember to take a little bit of time to slow down. I love you all for listening and I will see you next time.